Hey everybody, welcome to the final episode of the Gog Magog War Study. This is part seven, answers to critical questions. This study will be put out as a video as well as an audio podcast. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com for links to the video embeds or for the podcast. I will start off by answering some questions that were sent in to me during the course of this study from listeners, and then I will finish up this episode with answering objections from ChristInProphecy.org. They put together a pretty comprehensive list of 12 criticisms of this theory, and I'll just go through those one by one. I received a number of questions about verses found at the very end of Ezekiel 39. This is a section that Bible translations that put headings on sections in the Bible will usually mark out as a new section. Some, like the ESV, start this new section around Ezekiel 39:25, while other versions, like the New King James Version, starts this new section at verse 21. But the point is, there is a recognition among Bible translators that at the end of Ezekiel 39, there is a shift in tone that can warrant a different title heading. So as a refresher, in context, Ezekiel has been talking about an undisputedly future vision, which we know of as the Gog-Magog War. Gog is defeated, the bird feast happens, God is glorified, but then around verse 21, the tone shifts. And during the last few verses in the chapter, it begins to speak of things that cause you to do a double take. For example, all of a sudden, Israel and its sin is back in focus. It talks about their captivity into the nations, which is a result of sin, and how their ultimate restoration will be in the Messianic age. I'll read the passage. Ezekiel 39, 22-29 says, And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among those nations any more, and I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This can be a little bit confusing, since for the past two chapters, not a single negative thing was said about Israel. They were a people dwelling in perfect peace and harmony, presumably in the Messianic age. They were defended by God when Gog and his armies attempted to attack them. Yet now it seems to have reverted back to the themes that began in Ezekiel 33, which is exactly what I will argue is happening. If you remember from our study on the context of the Gog-Magog War, Ezekiel 38 and 39, where this war occurs, is really the finale of a series of six visions that Ezekiel was given starting in chapter 33, verse 21, when Ezekiel was told by a messenger that Jerusalem had fallen to Babylon. The messenger, as we saw, sparked a series of visions that had a very particular theme and structure. The visions first chastised Israel and the surrounding nations for the sins that led to the fall of the city and their soon coming slavery in Babylon. 
But the second part usually was a comfort to the people of Israel and consistently gave them pictures of a restored Israel, a regathered people from exile who would be cleansed of sin and ruled by Messiah in an age of plenty and restoration. This series concludes with chapters 38 and 39, which is, among other things, a prophetic demonstration of the futility of attacking Jerusalem after this prophesied restoration. The point is that this last section of Ezekiel 39 serves as a kind of conclusion to the entire vision that started in verse 33, and it necessarily reverts from at least more than 1,000 years in our current future to 2,500 years in our past, to 587 BC, when Ezekiel first found out that Jerusalem had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar and they were all about to be either killed or carried off to exile in chains. So when it says things like, and the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, it's bringing it all the way back to Ezekiel's more contemporary audience, who need to know first and foremost that the captivity that they're about to experience is because of their sin, and their inevitable future restoration is going to be because of God's mercy and faithfulness. Similarly, the concluding line in the whole vision says, I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This too is now part of the encouragement for those in the 587 BC era. It's now shifted back to them looking forward, and it's making a direct reference to a promise which appeared in the fifth vision in chapters 37, verse 14, which says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. This last verse in Ezekiel 39, then, focuses in on arguably the main point of the entire six messages, that one day a new covenant is coming for the house of Israel, and they will certainly not be in exile forever. Let's move on to this list of critiques from ChristInProphecy.org. I chose this mostly because it was the longest and most comprehensive list I could find, and from a fairly reputable site, which is David Regan's site, though this particular article was written by one of the writers on the site, Nathan Jones. I think it's important for me to go through these one by one, because I think you'll see as we do that that the quality of these arguments are not very good, and for me, one of the best ways to test a theory is to see the quality of the arguments against it and the quality of the rebuttals. His first argument goes like this. Ezekiel's chapters would be chronologically out of order with this view. And again, he's rebutting the post 1000 year view. He says, Ezekiel 33 through 39 covers the national restoration of Israel and is followed by chapters 40 through 48, which describe Israel's spiritual restoration entering into and enduring throughout the millennial kingdom. So what does he mean when he says Ezekiel's chapters would be chronologically out of order with this view? As we've seen, Ezekiel's chapters 33 through 39 ends with the Gog-Magog War. The next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 40, begins a nine-chapter discussion about the millennium, with dimensions of the millennial temple and the land allotments, with all kinds of details. So he's saying that if the last nine chapters in Ezekiel are about the millennium, then whatever comes before those chapters must chronologically come before the millennium in time. The first thing I want to do is draw your attention to why no serious scholar thinks these two sections of Ezekiel are linked chronologically, 
which is that they are obviously two different prophecies, which occurred 13 years apart from one another, as Ezekiel makes very clear. I'll play a quick section from a previous video I did about this question. I honestly believe that the main reason people reject this notion is because chapters 38 and 39 in Ezekiel are followed by an obvious description of the millennium in Ezekiel 40 through 48. They assume that since Ezekiel 40 through 48 is talking about the millennium, that the Gog Magog War, which is found in the two preceding chapters, must occur before the millennium. There are indeed many occasions in Scripture where this kind of chronological connection would be valid, but as we will see, this is definitely not one of them. Ezekiel begins each prophecy with a description of the date when he received it. He does this 13 times throughout the book. The section that includes the prophecy against Gog begins in chapter 33, verse 21, which says, And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. Everything that Ezekiel was given to write about Gog and Magog is included in this prophecy, which lasts for six chapters, and ends after the section about the Gog-Magog war in chapter 39. The nine chapters that follow this prophecy about the millennium are part of a completely different prophecy which was given to Ezekiel 13 years later. Chapter 40 begins this way. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Dr. J. Paul Tanner says of this in his paper, Rethinking Ezekiel's Invasion by Gog, quote, we need not expect chapters 40 through 48 to chronologically follow chapters 30 through 39, since these chapters are part of a separate vision. If you take the dates of Ezekiel's 13 visions and put them in chronological order, it would look like this. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, Ezekiel 8, 1, Ezekiel 20, 1, Ezekiel 24, 1, Ezekiel 29, 1, Ezekiel 26, 1, Ezekiel 30, verse 20, Ezekiel 31, verse 1, Ezekiel 33, verse 21, Ezekiel 32, 1 and 17, Ezekiel 41, and Ezekiel 29, 17. You will notice that three of the visions are not in chronological order, and more importantly that Ezekiel 29, 17, which is about Egypt being conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, was written later than the prophecy of the millennium that begins in Ezekiel 40. A simple understanding of the nature of the book of Ezekiel would prevent anyone from building doctrine based on the order of the visions in Ezekiel. Some people even suggest that the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel are part of a separate book altogether. Josephus tells us that Ezekiel, quote, left behind two books, Antiquities 10, 5, 1. And while we don't have enough information to say conclusively what Josephus meant, it would make sense if the last nine chapters of Ezekiel were distributed separately, and it would mean that the book of Ezekiel originally ended with the Gog-Magog War, which would be fitting since the book of Revelation essentially ends with the Gog-Magog war also. Admittedly, this point is too speculative to be dogmatic about. The next part of this claim is also not very good. He says Ezekiel 33-39 covers the national restoration of Israel. What he wants you to think is that there is a clear chronological flow from Ezekiel 33 to Ezekiel 39, and that earlier things happen in earlier chapters, and later things happen in later chapters, and then, in his view, it would only be in chapter 40, after the Gog-Magog War in 38 and 39, that the millennium finally came into view. But, as we've seen in this study, the pattern of the six visions in Ezekiel 33 through 39 is a beginning part, where there is a pronouncement of judgment against a people or place, followed by promises of restoration in the kingdom age. 
there is no chronological narrative progression in the way that he wants his readers to think there is. To prove this, notice that the Messiah is said to be ruling and reigning on earth in chapters 34 and 37, along with plenty of other obviously messianic age themes that are obviously present. And as a side note, I just now noticed seven parts into the series that I had a major typo on this graph where the message to all read 33, chapter 33, where they should have read 34. To prove this, let me just read Ezekiel 37, 22 through 28. Now remember, in Ezekiel 37, since he thinks this is all chronological, this is maybe 1948, but has nothing to do with the millennium. He would say that the millennium doesn't start until Ezekiel chapter 40, and it's all chronological. But again, just let me read this passage and you make up your own mind. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in their land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So I think simply reading that passage is enough to convince most of you that the millennium obviously is in view in this passage, and to say that it can't be because the millennium doesn't start until Ezekiel 40 is just a bad argument. His next argument is similar, though. He says Revelation 20's chronology does not harmonize with Ezekiel's chronology. Revelation 20 describes the millennial kingdom, which is immediately followed by chapter 21 concerning the eternal state. So what he's saying is that the Gog-Magog War in Revelation 20, where John specifically says something called the Gog-Magog War will happen at the end of the thousand years, it can't be the same as the Ezekiel version of the Gog-Magog War. Because after the event in Revelation 20, the eternal kingdom begins in Revelation 21 and 22. He says that can't be the same thing as in Ezekiel because in his view, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are followed by the millennium chapters of 40 through 48. So you can see it's just the same thing as his original point. He's insisting that Ezekiel 40 through 48 is chronologically connected to what comes before it. At this point, it would be like saying that since Isaiah chapter two is obviously about the millennium, all the other chapters in Isaiah after chapter two are chronologically after the millennium. It's just not how the Bible works. To be clear, it can work like that, and it often does work like that in the Bible. There are lots of times in which a chapter is chronologically linked to the chapter that comes after it, and usually it's obvious. There is language that says something like, and then this happened, which means that it's connected, or other contextual clues, or maybe they are part of the same vision. But in this case, none of those things are true. They're not part of the same vision. There's no language that chronologically connects them. He is just saying that they're connected and therefore it can't be right. His third argument reads as follows. 
the Gog Magog invaders would no longer have bodies that require Israel to bury over seven months, as the Revelation account records the invaders being incinerated by fire coming down from the heavens. So the passages, for example, Ezekiel 39.12 says, For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So we know they bury these bodies of Gog and his armies. In Revelation 20, though, it says, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's from the ESV. So he's saying that the Gog-Magog invasion in Revelation 20 can't be the same as the one in Ezekiel, because in Revelation 20, verse 9, it says the fire from heaven consumed them, or some translations say devoured them. So the idea is that what are they burying if their bodies were completely devoured by flames? The first point I would make is that all we're told of these bodies in Ezekiel 39 is that they are bones. In Ezekiel 39, 15 through 16, it says, And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Another thing I'll mention is that in another prophecy in Zechariah 14, which has undeniable parallels to the Gog-Magog War, it describes the destruction of the armies in a way that seems to suggest that their flesh is the main target of the attack. Zechariah 14, 12 through 13 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So it seems to me that you could bury the bones of people who had their flesh consumed by this heavenly fire. But one of the more obvious problems with the argument, in my opinion, is that he's conveniently leaving out that fire from heaven and brimstone is in Ezekiel's version as well. John, in my opinion, through the Holy Spirit, is just summarizing in three verses the whole of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And fire from heaven is kind of the main event in both accounts, not just the Revelation account. So yeah, fire from heaven is clearly in both passages. It's mentioned twice in Ezekiel, actually. So either way, you're going to have to deal with the people of Israel burying bones of those who have had holy fire and sulfur and brimstone rained down on them. I think he's just trying to make a bigger deal of this word consumed or devoured that I think is intended and make it mean that there can be nothing left. And while that is one possible meaning of the word, there are a number of other obvious possibilities, such as having all of your flesh burn up by fire from heaven, or it could just be speaking of the utter destruction of one's body by having fire and brimstone rain down on them, but not necessarily the annihilation of every atom in the body. Okay, this next one I actually like. I think it's one of the two best arguments he has. He says, Israel would have no reason to need seven months to bury the dead invaders if God is just going to resurrect them at the end of the millennium, judge them at the great white throne judgment, and then throw them into the lake of fire. So the argument is, and remember, in Revelation 20, we have the thousand-year period, then we have the Gog-Magog war, or whatever is happening there in Revelation 28 through 9, and then we have Satan being judged in Revelation 20, verse 10. Then we have the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And then finally, we have the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. So what people call the eternal kingdom. So the argument is, since the great white throne judgment, which is where all the unsaved from all time will be resurrected from the dead and judged. In this view, it would be after the burial of the bones in Ezekiel 39, 11 through 16. So why take the time to bury the bodies if they're just going to get resurrected and judged right after this anyway? 
I'll start off by quoting from J. Paul Tanner in his 1996 paper, Rethinking Ezekiel's Invasion by Gog. This is uh, not necessarily trying to answer this criticism, but a similar criticism. He says, the Bible does not say that there will be a thousand years from the beginning of Christ's millennial rule until the eternal state. A closer look at Revelation 20 reveals that there are a thousand years from the beginning of Christ's millennial rule until the release of Satan. It does not tell how much time transpires between Satan's release and the eternal state. Following the thousand years, several things must take place before the eternal state. Number one, Satan will be released for a short time, Revelation 20 verse 3. Number two, Satan will have time to deceive the nations and move them to attack Israel. Number three, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 verse 10. And four, all of the unrighteous dead will be brought before the great white throne judged by God and thrown into the lake of fire. A serious consideration of these factors would suggest that it is not unreasonable that a period of several years will transpire during this time. Further, I would point out that we know almost nothing about the time period between the thousand years and the eternal state. And what we do know of the eternal state seems to go against what most people think they know about it. For example, look at this verse in Revelation 21, 24 through 27, where the eternal state is definitely in view. It seems to suggest that there is a pilgrimage system with the nations after that. It says, By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, speaking of the New Jerusalem, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. On this point, I want to recommend a book by Janet Willis called What on Earth is Heaven Like? Uh, I was just introduced to this book last week, which is essentially a Bible study on the New Jerusalem, and it has a really interesting thesis that really makes me think about the nature of the eternal kingdom, and I highly recommend it. I'm going to move on to the fifth criticism here. I think we'll get into more of this discussion about what to think about the time period between the thousand years and the eternal state as we discuss some of his other arguments. So we'll just move on to number five, which is Israel would have no reason to burn the invaders' weapons into the perfect eternal state. I think this argument is a lot like the last one in that it is based on no real evidence. It is a presumption about what the eternal state is like and what will and won't be needed. I've already argued one side of this, which is that we don't know how much time will elapse between the war in Revelation 20 and the eternal state. But I think we need to ask ourselves another question, which is, will the eternal state with the new Jerusalem be only for resurrected beings? Will there be no more humans on the planet? Certainly the city of New Jerusalem itself, which is literally heaven, is just for resurrected, saved believers. But what about the rest of the world? If you think there are no more, let's call them first life people on the world, what do you suppose happened to all the real earthly people who were in the millennium but did not rebel, who did not participate in the Gog-Magog war? Did they just disappear before the eternal state? If this person wants to argue that there is no need for cooking fires or fires for warmth in the eternal state, they need to make a more explicit argument for why it wouldn't be needed. Simply stating that it won't be isn't good enough. Some might say, well, there's no need for sunlight in the eternal kingdom, so perhaps there's no need for fires as well. But that's just a description of the inside of the New Jerusalem city, which is lit by the glory of God. It is not claiming that there's no more sun, or really giving any information about what the land is like outside the city. Moving on to his next argument, he says, Ezekiel's and Revelation's description of the invading armies do not match. Ezekiel describes a coalition of Russian and Muslim nations attacking Israel. 
Revelation describes a much larger scope with the invaders coming out of the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Revelation 20 verse 8. So if you listen to this argument carefully, he's not really denying, as some do, that the nations in Ezekiel also come from the four cardinal directions as Revelation 20 seems to describe. For example, from the north would be, I think, Turkey, he thinks Russia, but they're both from the north, so it doesn't really matter in this case. Then we have Persia to the east, Kush to the south, and Put to the west. Instead, what he's arguing is that in Ezekiel, the nations involved are more localized, like pretty much just around the Middle East and Russia, where in Revelation 20, he believes it should be a bigger area because of this phrase, nations which are in the four corners of the earth. In his view, the Middle East with Russia is not big enough to be considered from the four corners of the earth, regardless of the direction they come from. I suppose he's wanting this to be a situation where every continent on earth is involved or just a much bigger geographical area. One very easy way to prove that four corners of the earth can not only refer to a group of nations in the Middle East, but precisely the nations involved in Ezekiel 38 and 39 can be seen in Isaiah 11, 10 through 12, which says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So if this image doesn't show how bad of an argument this is, I don't know what will. You can clearly see that the nations that Isaiah included in his four corners of the earth are, for all intents and purposes, the exact same nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which are called the four corners of the earth in Revelation 20. There is therefore no reason to expect this phrase, four corners of the earth, to need to include all the continents on the planet or anything larger than this basic geographical area. Moving on to his next argument, he says, Ezekiel's and Revelation's descriptions of the battlefields do not match. Ezekiel describes the Gog-Magog battle taking place on, quote, the mountains of Israel, while Revelation's account states that the battle takes place on, quote, the broad plain of the earth. Let me first read Revelation 20, verse 9. It says, And they marched, this is speaking of Gog's armies, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So first of all, I want to point out the obvious, that in Revelation 20 verse 9, it's simply saying that Gog's armies marched across the broad plain of the earth in order to get to the camp of the saints. It's not talking about the geography of the camp of the saints, but about where Gog and his armies came from. Ezekiel is talking about the geography of their destination. It's not even intended to be speaking of the same thing. So even though this argument is moot, I would like to take the opportunity to mention at least two other places where different geography is mentioned with regard to this battle. Ezekiel 39, 5 says, you, speaking of Gog, shall fall in the open field. Also in Ezekiel 39, 11 through 16, three times the valley is mentioned as the place of his burial. And if we assume that Gog's army's burial ground is near the place of battle, you would have some evidence to suggest that the battle was in a valley. His next argument says, Ezekiel's and Revelation's description of Israel's rulers do not match. Ezekiel 38 and 39 follows chapters 36 through 37, which describe the rebirth of Israel, a nation not yet in belief in God, nor having accepted Jesus as Messiah. 
the Revelation 20 account has Jesus already ruling from Jerusalem for a thousand years. So this is pretty much just a restating of his earlier argument, his belief that Ezekiel 33 through 39 is a chronological thing in which the Messiah has not shown up yet. It has nothing to do with the Messiah or the millennial kingdom. In his view, this is that all comes later in Ezekiel 40. And we showed you in Ezekiel 37, for instance, how obviously it is that it's talking about the millennium and Jesus. It says, and one king shall be king over them all. Who do they think that is? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, my servant David shall rule over them. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Who, who could that possibly be except the Messiah? I mean, it's obviously the Messiah. This argument is absurd. We could even go back further to Ezekiel 34, in which it's all about the Messiah and God talking about how he will be the one to rule them during this time. And it's an encouragement to Israel. And it ends in uh, the last part of this part in Ezekiel 34 like this. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is obviously talking about the millennium. What other time could this be? It is not talking about anything before this. So this argument that uh, Revelation 20, they have a Messiah, but there's no Messiah and Ezekiel 33 through 39, it's an absurd argument. And I know I'm overusing that term. His next argument goes like this. Ezekiel's and Revelation's description of the invaders leaders do not match. Gog is in control of the coalition against Israel in Ezekiel's account whereas Satan is in control of the coalition against Jesus in Revelation's account. While Satan is clearly mentioned in Revelation's account, it is unknown if Gog is possessed by Satan or is a man possessed by Satan. The first part is easily refuted by reading Revelation 27 through 8, which I'll do right now. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So John is not saying that Satan himself leads these armies. It says that once he's let out, he deceives the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. There's no contradiction here. It clearly says that Gog is the one doing the battling, but it just makes the point that it happens due to a deception from Satan. I think the next part of this claim is just maybe a little deceptive or maybe it's just bad, but he says that in Ezekiel's account, there is a coalition against Israel, whereas in the Revelation account, there is a coalition against Jesus. But that's just not what the text says. In Revelation 20, verse seven through nine, it says nothing about a coalition against Jesus. It clearly says that they're gathered to go to battle against the camp of the saints and the beloved city, literally Israel. So it just seems obvious that it's the same thing. His attempt to make a distinction is, I think, deceptive. This next argument, however, is really good. I think it's one of the two best arguments he has in this list of 12. It says, Ezekiel's and Revelation's description of Israel's faith do not match. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, God uses the Gog-Magog battle to make himself known to Israel and the world. In Revelation 20, Israel has already long acknowledged Yahweh as God and King going on a thousand years. The first thing I would like to point out is what this critique is not questioning, which is that the Gog-Magog war will be used by God to make the nations, that is the non-Jewish people, know him, 
which it mentions five times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, to only two mentions of the war being used to glorify God to the Jews as well. I say that because this author would probably agree that this could be the case with regard to the nations during the millennium. I'll play a short clip on that point from the old video I did. It is true that the nations and Israel will be subservient to Christ in the millennium, but several passages in Scripture make it known that it is far from a sin-free state. Isaiah 65:20, Isaiah 11:3-5, Zechariah 14:16-21. In those passages, it says that quote, "wicked people" and quote, "sinners" are still there. In fact, this is probably the reason that Jesus rules during this era with a, quote, rod of iron, that is, to quickly and decisively give out judgment to those who are sinning. It is generally accepted that during the millennium, people will still need to accept Christ as their Savior, in addition to their King, and that not everyone on earth is automatically saved in the millennium. Arthur Pink said this of the millennial reign, In spite of the fact that Satan will have been removed from the earth, and Christ reigns in person over it, Yet conditions here will not be perfect even in the millennium. Unregenerate human nature will remain unchanged. Sin will still be present, though much of its outward manifestation will be restrained. Discontent and wickedness will not be eradicated from the hearts of men, but will be kept beneath the surface by means of the iron rod. Multitudes will yield to Christ nothing but, quote, feigned obedience, Psalm 18:44 margin. This feigned obedience will be the product of power, not grace. It will be the fruit of fear and not love. The fact that not everyone is saved is quite obvious when you consider that when Satan is released at the end of this thousand years, he is able to tempt so many people to go to war against Jesus that their numbers are referred to as being like the sands of the sea. The point I'm trying to make here is that the millennium is obviously a blessed time, but it's not perfect, and it is not doctrinally correct to say that every person on earth is saved or, quote, knows God in the salvific sense at this time. While I agree that when the 70th week ends, Israel will be saved and the nations will be made subservient to God, there should be a distinction between that event, which begins at the millennium, and the universal love and knowledge of God that Ezekiel describes, which apparently won't occur until after the end of the millennium in the eternal kingdom. So my point is, first, that people would agree that despite the nations obviously knowing Jesus in some sense during the millennium, I mean, Jesus is literally ruling over them as king, and they do go up to Jerusalem year by year for feast days. So we would agree that they know him in one sense, but they don't know him in the way that God would want a saved person to know him if they are not saved, which clearly some of them in the millennium will not be. But apparently after the Gog Magog War, the nations will have their hearts changed in some way. But the question is, what about the Jews? Don't the Jews know him in that way during the millennium? Nothing is going to change with them after the millennium, will it? Well, let's think about it. So I'm showing an artist's representation of what a map of Israel might look like during the millennium, according to the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, which are very detailed with regard to these kinds of measurements. The point I'm trying to make is that these tribes from Dan, Asher, Manasseh, etc. are all human beings who are descendants of probably the 144,000. They're not eternal beings. They are in some sense just like the nations we mentioned before. They are real humans who I would argue are not necessarily saved. While they are certainly set apart and protected, and I suspect the vast majority of them are saved, what would the mechanism for that be? If they have a newborn baby, let's say, is that baby automatically saved just because it's a Jew in the millennium? 
But the point is, there is a change after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, it seems. And so, yes, I would say there is room for God to speak of earthly people really knowing him in totality only after the great white throne judgment, after the final defeat of Satan. In other words, it's only after the great white throne judgment that the question of salvation becomes essentially a moot point. I need to be careful not to fall into the trap that I was accusing him of earlier, which is claiming to know things about the eternal kingdom that I can't possibly know. There's just not that much information in the Bible about it. And I think one of the reasons that this question is a good one is because there's just not enough information for me or I think anyone to adequately answer it. Moving on to his last two arguments, number 11 says, the unbelieving children of the tribulation saints who have survived to live in the millennial kingdom will be the ones who wage war against God at the end of the thousand years, as opposed to the children from the age of the quote time of the Gentiles who wage war in Ezekiel and Jesus's account. This one really isn't even an argument as much as it is an assertion about what he believes, but to be fair, let me explain it. Basically, he is saying that in the Revelation 20 passage, which necessarily is in the millennium, is fought by those living in the millennium. But with regard to Ezekiel's war, he thinks it's fought by the Gentiles mentioned in Luke 21:24, which reads, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Setting aside for the moment the contradiction that would arise if the Gentiles in Luke 21:24 were speaking of the armies of Ezekiel, because the Gentiles in Luke 21:24 actually conquer the city of Jerusalem, where the armies of Gog absolutely do not. But I think pretty much everyone would agree that this Luke passage has no connection to either Revelation 20 or Ezekiel 38 and 39 directly. There's nothing in the text that assumes there's some kind of parallel or linguistic connection. You just have to assume they're speaking of the same thing because you decided to. This person obviously has a theory that the Gog-Magog war occurs in the last part of the seven-year period, and he's simply asserting that. Basically, he's saying you can't be right because I'm right. So there's no argument to interact with here. Moving on to his final argument, he says, John's use of, quote, Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 verse 8 is more likely to draw a comparison between Ezekiel's Gog-Magog battle and the one John is describing at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. In other words, the labeling acts as a kind of shorthand saying, quote, it's going to be Gog and Magog all over again. So this is something that people have to do. They have to try to explain away why John says the words Gog and Magog in Revelation 27 through 9 if it's not the Gog-Magog war. His argument is that John was just using this term Gog and Magog to draw a comparison to Ezekiel's war, even though he was describing a completely different war. But he was using the term because it was a very similar war. For example, they're both battles in which a leader gathers nations to war from the four cardinal directions against Israel, but they don't succeed because God intervenes with fire from heaven. <laughs> the fact is, of course, that he's just guessing about John's meaning here. There's nothing in the text that suggests that John was just throwing around this term Gog-Magog casually. As I hope we've seen all throughout this study, there is ample reason to suggest that John was just giving a three-verse summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39 in Revelation 27 through 10. And despite there being only three verses, I think you can see that he did enough for any non-biased person to recognize it. That's it for this study. I would really encourage everyone to subscribe to the audio podcast or the RSS feed at the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. As things get more censored or whatever, I honestly think that audio podcasts are going to be one of the few things 
that are left, or at least one of the last things that are left um, that we'll be able to communicate with. And it's one of the things that I've always done. I've always done audio podcasts. I occasionally put these videos out and I am going to try to do more, but that's the best way to keep up with what's going on uh, with me at BibleProphecyTalk.com. My uh, intention is to do more of these kind of studies and to do them more regularly. So uh, please stop by and uh, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.